Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our policy polls on the truth about current food and meat prices. Please welcome our speakers, Jason Lusk, Distinguished Professor and Head of Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University, and Darren Basque, Senior Research Fellow in Regulatory Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. My name is Darren Baxt, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in Regulatory Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And we're really fortunate to have one of the top agricultural economists in the country today, Dr. Jason Lusk, joining us to discuss the truth about current food and meat prices. Jason, as you heard, is a distinguished professor and head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. There's been recent attention on higher food prices, in large part because the Biden administration is asserting that current high prices are due to a small number of dominant players in the meat processing industry. And we're going to discuss this assertion and a lot more. So let's get right to it. Um, Jason, it's, it's really nice to see you and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Darren, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here with you and, and with Heritage. So, so Jason, I think a good place to start is what is the current state of food prices in general and are they higher than usual? I mean, certainly since the onset of the pandemic, we've we've seen food prices increase at a, at a higher than usual rate. So just to give you some sense, um, since you know January of 2020, uh, food prices are up about seven percent over that you know roughly year and a half time period. And um, so you know seven percent, you could you know question whether that's large or small. It's certainly that if you look at specific components, uh, meat prices have risen at an even faster rate. So beef, for example, is up about 12 percent uh, in the most recent data compared to the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but if you look at just sort of you know year over year changes, the sort of annual changes in food prices, it's higher than what we've come to expect in the past. Uh, so, for example, you know in the in the ten years or so you know before the pandemic, we were you know on average looking about one to two percent increase in food prices, and we're certainly much higher than that at the moment. So more around three to four percent. And so we're higher than normal, but we're certainly nowhere near, say, 1970s or 80s level of inflation. That's kind of a also I'm just wondering, that's kind of a small window of time that we're looking at, right? I mean, it, prices are going to fluctuate a lot. They do. That's right. And that's particularly true of meat prices. And I know we're going to talk more about meat in particular in a moment, but of all the food prices, meat prices tend to be more volatile than others. Uh, and so you do see, you know, prices moving up and down. And even over the last, uh, you know, last year and a half, uh, there's a lot of wiggling around that, that happens over that time period. But yeah, in the grand scheme of things, it's a, it's a relatively small time period. So a lot of attention has been put on meat and poultry prices, um, playing a, a role in the higher food prices. How big of a role is it playing? Um, how what's what are we seeing with meat and poultry prices? Sure. 
So, you know, if you look at the, you know, CPI, the consumer price index and the food component of that, um, you know, meat is a big component of food prices because we spend a relatively high share of our food dollar on, on meat items. We, we like to eat meat. Meat is, is a relatively expensive item. So when meat prices change, it tends to push overall food prices. So what are we seeing specifically in, in the meat sector? Um, so uh, back in, uh, you know, in the initial run-up of uh, food prices that happened last March, um, you know, meat prices increased along with all other food items. But the thing that really moved meat prices were, were the meat packing plant shutdowns that happened in April, May, June of 2020. And I probably don't need to recount that for all the listeners, but but that saw a very significant period of price increases in beef and pork, less so in chicken. And then interestingly, one question I get sometimes from journalists and others is, well, don't prices just always increase and they never come back down? Well, that, that's not actually true. If we look at April, May, and June of, of 2021, their, their prices were actually, beef and pork prices were actually lower than they were the prior year at the retail level. Um, but we've seen really in the last month or two, those prices starting to come back up again a bit. And, and part of that's just strong demand. So a lot of demand by some by, by countries like China. And we're also seeing pressure on, on feed prices. So uh, corn, soybean prices are increasing. That's, that's adding cost to the system, among many other costs that are in the system at the moment. So isn't one of the factors like on the demand side is you're still getting a decent amount, getting high demand in grocery stores, but people are going out more. So you're getting the high, so you have this new demand with the restaurants and, you know, out of home eating. That's part of it. I mean, certainly it's the case that spending on food away from home hasn't fully, depending on which data set we look at, but it 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 hasn't fully recovered to the pre-pandemic levels, but it, it's much better than it was a year and a half ago. And so the overall demand picture, when you look at food at home and food away from home for meat, is a really strong picture for that sector. Uh, for whatever reason, consumers are wanting meat in their diets, and you can see that on the demand side. And then the, the other factor that I alluded to as well is we've just seen really strong demand for U.S. meat by our foreign customers, particularly in China, but in other parts of the world too. So you add relatively stable and strong domestic demand for meat, and then on top of that, really strong increasing demand for, for our meat products by our trading partners, and that combined picture is one that, that's really helped pull up meat prices. So, I mean, it sounds like basic economics at play. So, uh, so USDA on their on their website they have they kind of explain the fact there's higher prices with meat and poultry and they don't point to high concentration levels within the meat processing as a cause. I you know I don't know if that was you know right or wrong, but so I'd, I'd ask you is is high concentration a possible cause for the higher current prices for meat that we're seeing now? Of course, anything is possible um, in. You know, I do want to say at the onset, there are a, a very large number of lawsuits going on at the moment in the meat sectors, different allegations, different companies involved in different ones of them. And, and so, of course, any one of those particular allegations, you know, might be true at some point in time. But if you just take a step back and look at sort of the big picture, while it is true that meat processing is relatively concentrated, so for example, the, the four largest firms produce about 80% of all beef and pork. It's a little bit lower in chicken. 
that number hasn't changed a lot over time. So if, if the argument is that that over the last year and a half, meat prices have increased significantly, um, concentration, while it's high, that hasn't changed. So if you can't explain a change with something that's been held constant. Um, so that relatively high degree of concentration in the meatpacking sector is something that's been with us for a long, long period of time. It's not something that's changed recently. And by and large, the academic literature uh, that exists on, on that concentration suggests that the main, Im main impact of that concentration is lower prices to food consumers uh, because they've those companies, by being large, have economies of scale. The, the cost of production of each you know, pound of beef or pork that's produced is much lower than it would be if we had you know, much smaller packing plants. So you know, there's a lot of academic research on this question. And the net effect is pretty clear that, that that high level of concentration has actually pulled down prices for consumers rather than, than pushed it up. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, you, you know, to kind of take a, a even a step back, just kind of a bigger picture economic question, maybe hopefully not too wonky. Um, there, there seems to be kind of an underlying assumption that short-term high prices are somehow a bad thing. And, and I just kind of want to see if you could explain like why prices themselves are like a really important way to convey information so that the market kind of responds and kind of gets back into what's called equilibrium. Can, can you explain that to us? Yeah, it's a really great question, Darren. And so maybe we could back up, you know, to one of the earlier episodes that I mentioned when we, we had the meatpacking plant shut down. So, you know, workers started to become, you know, you know, catch COVID-19 in, you know, really late April and May of 2020. And as a result, those packing plants shut down as they tried to retool and, you know, implement efforts to make sure the virus didn't spread too much. And so as a result, there was less meat being produced, less meat being put on the market. Um, so how do you tell consumers they have to cut back? Well, grocery stores can put up signs, and some did put up signs that said, you can only buy two pounds. Uh, but you know, you can go to a different grocery store and buy two more packages or two more pounds at that other store. So you know, absent that sort of explicit communication, um, prices are the mechanism by which we as consumers get a signal that we, we need to be more judicious. That price, rising price to us was telling us hey, there's less meat on the market, uh, somebody's gonna have to cut back, and that price is, is the mechanism by which we allocate that scarcity. And oh, by the way, that, that higher price does the opposite on the producer side of things. So we were talking about market power just a bit earlier, and you know, I think there's some sort of conspiratorial views, like maybe the meat packers did this to, you know, they intentionally shut down to drive up prices. Well, when prices are that high, you have every incentive to get back up and running, right? If retail prices are increasing and you're a meat packer, you don't want to lose out on those higher prices. That's profit you're giving up if you're not running your plant and taking advantage of that. So that higher price is also providing all the incentives on the production side of things to get back to work, to get those plants back up and running, to find incentives, to get your workers to show up, uh, to, to social distance them, uh, to implement PPE so that you don't shut down again. That's what those higher prices signal to the on the production side of things. That provides the economic incentive to get back up and running and get prices back 
you know, hopefully to a more normal level, which is indeed what we what we saw. You know, I, I don't know if I've seen this as much this year as last year. There's kind of this idea that there's a a paradox of, you know, why farmers are not getting as much um, money. They're not getting paid as much while at the same time, you know, consumers are paying a lot more. And there's this kind of feeling like there's some type of conspiracy as a result of why are farmers getting so little sometimes, but the retail prices are going up and then they blame the meat processors. Is, is there a paradox or am I missing something here? So there's two things going on there. So first, there is something that looks like a, par a paradox that you referred to. Um, so particularly that, that era when we had the meatpacking plant shutdowns, at that time period, uh, retail meat prices were increasing at the same time that prices, farm level prices of cattle and hogs were falling. And that did seem a bit odd, but you know, it's actually something that doesn't require anything nefarious. It's just basic economic one economics 101. If, if you'd have come to me before any of this happened and just asked me, Jason, what do, what do you think would happen if we, we took some of the largest meat packers and shut them down for a few weeks? And that price phenomenon, that widening spread between retail and farm prices is exactly what I'd predict. And here's why. So you, 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 you know, remove a big chunk of packing capacity. What that means is those packers can no longer say take as many cattle. In other words, there's too many cattle sitting around relative to the ability to process them. And again, getting back to prices, the, the way that gets signaled back to the, to the producer is prices have to fall to uh to you know for the for that signal to to reach out so uh packers reduce their demand for livestock because they can't process them that puts downward pressure on livestock prices and, and by the way that, that lower prices again speaking about signals what what beef producers did in some cases they they held cattle back they didn't put as many into feedlots at that time period but at the same time because those packing plants aren't running there isn't as much meat being produced on the market so a reduction in the supply of meat, but you still have the same number of buyers out there, the same number of grocery stores and restaurants that want meat. And so they're bidding against each other for a smaller quantity of meat that's out there and that pulls up the retail prices. And so you do get this widening spread when you have a disruption in the packing sector. So that, but I want, one thing I want to emphasize that I think is important is, you know, that was sort of a temporary phenomenon that we, we did have this really widening spread but then things return to something, you know, more closer to normal within a, a month or two time period. And there's this view, and I've seen it repeated uh, by the Biden administration in a couple of recent documents about the packing sector that that uh, packers were getting rich while farmers were, you know, going broke. But if you actually look at data on how farmers fared over the course of 2020, it's it's actually a much prettier picture than most people realize. So. Uh, it, so one measure of sort of overall health of the agricultural economy is something called net farm income, um, basically sort of aggregate profitability of the farm sector. It's something the U.S. Department of Agriculture calculates every year. And if you look at from 2019 to 2020, so prior pandemic to the year of the you know pandemic, net farm in, in, income increased by 20 percent. Now it's in all fairness a big chunk of that increase was because of a huge increase in government payments to farmers. So about 40 billion uh, or so dollars in direct payments went to farmers over that year. But even if you look at USDA's projection for 2021, so you know going from 2020, which has already increased over the previous year, 
And now from 2020 to 2021, they're projecting another 20% increase in net farm income. And that's not because of you know, an increase in government payments. In fact, government payments are projected to fall back to, to more normal levels. And it's almost entirely because of, of higher commodity prices. So in fact, if you look again at projections for net farm income for this year in 2021, it's higher than it's been in the last eight years. And there's only three years over the last 20 that have been higher. So, you know, at least in terms of aggregate farm economy, it's actually in pretty darn good shape at the moment. So I've asked this, I think you've answered this before. Let me ask this, um, a couple of questions. First of all, there's, there's kind of this assumption that there are high concentration levels in meat processing and you, you gave some of the numbers. Um, for, my first question is, one, is it true? Do you consider the, the numbers in poultry kind of individually, like poultry, pork and beef to kind of those industries to have what would be thought of as high concentration levels whatever that means, how we'd measure that. And then the, the second question is, and you kind of got to this as well, is is high concentration in and of itself a bad thing um, for, for consumers or could it be a good thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those, those are good questions. So, you know, I mentioned the four firm concentration ratio that is roughly 80% in beef and pork, a little bit lower in chicken. Another way to look at the concentration ratio is instead of looking at, um, you know, a company like say Tyson or JBS, instead look at plants, individual produ producing plants. Um, and those are also relatively highly concentrated. So you take the 10 largest beef packing plants, they produce about 60% of all the beef in the country. On the pork side, it's something like uh, 15 of the largest pork packing plants produce about 60% of all the, all the pork in this country. Um, it's less concentrated than some industries, but it's it's relatively concentrated. Um, but you know that doesn't necessarily mean there's anti-competitive behavior. And I mentioned those ten or fifteen largest you know large beef and pork packing plants. You know they're in different locations. They're competing against each other in local markets for for uh, for cattle and hogs. Um, and so it really depends on the nature of the competition be between those two. Uh, I think chicken is an interesting example too. As often, um, there's actually again a lot, quite a large number of lawsuits going on in the chicken industry at the moment. You know, chicken has you know become much more affordable over time. In fact, you look at the the rise and there's been an increase in meat consumption over the past you know 20, 30 years, almost entirely driven by increases in chicken consumption because chicken has increasingly become affordable, more relatively affordable over time, and so. Uh, you know, that concentration, you got to look at why it's large. Is it large because of sort of unfair competitive practices or did you get large because you were, you know, successful? And I, I, you know, I alluded to some of that academic literature before, but, you know, the data is very clear that the, the larger you are on a packing plant side of things, the lower your average costs of production. And so the main effect of that increase in size and concentration has been to uh, bring down the co average costs of production. And it, it's one of the, the challenges, I think, you know, people seem to want um, a more distributed system. Some people, I should say, want a more distributed system, sort of more smaller packing plants. Uh, but but the, most of those plants are, are really at a cost disadvantage, uh, just simply due to economies of scale. Uh, one other thing I should mention too, that's really key, I think, to size here is, 
uh, when you think about meatpacking is, um, you know, it, if you're a small meat packer, anybody can can sell the T-bones and even perhaps the ground meat. Like that, that's not hard. Or selling the bacon, for example, off off of a hog. But we're going to sell the the snouts and the tails and the feet, and um, you know the the hearts, the kidneys, all those things. You know, if you want to make money, you got to have markets for those products too. And one advantage of that size is it enables the ability to find markets for those products that are kind of hard. Um, and, and indeed, international consumers are often, you know, the home for some of those, you know, what we as Americans might consider more unusual products uh, for those. And so a lot of what's going on in those ex export markets is we're finding value added opportunities for products that, that we don't really want much here in this country. And so that that additional size also comes with, you know, with that comes the ability and the access to markets for some of these you know, what we might think of as unusual products, but you really need to sell them if you want to have profitability. You know, I, I want to kind of ask a question, at least not too much of a curveball, um, regarding kind of just food prices, going to take a step back. Um, just in general, you know, my understanding is that the households spend a lower percentage of their household income on food than they have in the past. Is is that true? Um, and and how, and how does that relate to meat prices too? Is it, meat prices generally come down overall? Um, mm -hmm. or not? Yeah, it's it's an excellent point, Darren. You know, we spend it depends again on the data set, but roughly 10%, a little less than 10% of our disposable income on food in this country. That's lower than it's ever been in history, and it's lower than you know almost any other country in the world. So, you know, we live in many ways in the food world in an absolutely incredible time um, in terms of affordability of food, because, you know, that means, you know, we can spend 90% of our income on all the other things in life that we enjoy, like, uh, I don't know, getting, getting to go to a football game or go, going to an opera or getting to donate to your favorite, you know, university, all those things you can afford to do because this basic necessity of life has become much more affordable over time relative to our incomes. And you, and you see a similar story in, 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 in the meat sector that, um, you know, meat is relatively, it is much more affordable in this country than it is in many others abroad. So when we get back to these discussions about impacts of concentration or maybe anti-competitive behavior, I think it's really important to put it into that broader context that, that food is very affordable here. In, in fact, if you if you look at a lot of the people that write in the so-called food movement era, you know, they, it's interesting because they're often arguing we should be paying more for food, um, not less. I, I think I think that's a wrong-headed argument for a number of reasons, because uh, there's also very strong evidence that the more affordable food is, that the the better people are fed. There's less food insecurity, um, and so. Uh, I think, you know, it's really actually, I think one of the most amazing stories of success of our food and agricultural industry that we've been able to make food so affordable for the vast majority of our population. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, when, so lower income households, um, you know, spend a greater percentage of their incomes on food than a higher income households. Mm -hmm. and. So if you're going, if food prices are going to go up, I think that I think there's evidence and plenty of evidence to show that there's going to be a disproportionate impact 
a lower income households. So it just seems kind of odd to want to drive prices higher because you're going to hurt low income households more than other households. So what, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's one reason that, uh, you know, food policies that tend to push up food prices are one, you know, we, we tend to think about as being regressive, meaning that the burden is borne relatively more by lower income households. It's why some states, for example, don't have sales taxes on food is it's it's viewed as a as a you know again a more equitable system in the sense that anytime you're messing around with the price of food that that impact is being felt more heavily by those lower income households and so one one could say like who, who's being who's felt the impacts of the recent price increases that we've seen during the pandemic more heavily you know probably lower income households have felt that burden a little more but again i think in the in the bigger grander scheme of things what we see is that really across the board for all consumers, those um, that that share of income we spend on food has, has certainly come down. It just seems like it's a little bit of a you don't you want to be careful not to take like such a small snapshot in time and then make policy decisions based on a really small little snapshot in time. You need it. Oh yeah, that's a great point, and it's even more important when we talk about meat and livestock. So you think about a, a cow, for example. Let's say you you have this grand plan, you, you're going to get in the cattle business, you buy a cow, um, you buy a bull, and you're going to breed, breed that the outcome and sell the offspring. Okay, it's going to be three years between roughly between when you make that decision and when you have something ready to sell. And so there are really long lags between decisions that are being made today and those outcomes that happen later. And indeed, I think, you know, a lot of cattle producers, for example, um, you know, are, are concerned about relative profitability that's going on right now. But honestly, a lot of that's happening because of these you know, cycles that happen, particularly in livestock markets. There's a cattle cycle, there's a hog cycle. And a lot of that's coming about because actually, you know, uh, beef and cattle production were super profitable uh, back in 2014 and 15. And uh, when that when it was really profitable, then producers decided to add more inventory to hold on to those heifers to breed them to try to produce more and so some of what we're seeing you know coming into the pandemic was that we had you know relatively large numbers of animals a lot of beef a lot of you know like a lot of cattle a lot of hogs on the market um, because of those lags and so some of that sort of reduction in profitability we were seeing prior to the pandemic was was because of these lags that you're seeing in the markets and, and when you're dealing with things like animals, you can't just turn them on or off. There are these long biological lags. So that's, you know, exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, I gave some testimony before the U.S. House Ag Committee, and that, and that was at least my, what I hoped was my key message to them is, you know, don't make decisions today based on what's happening today, because these are really longer run sectors. You want to make decisions today based on what's going to happen three to five years from now. So, so getting quickly to some policy, um, issues um which we've been but kind of specifically i, I do a lot of regulatory issues as, as my title says and my job title says um so the meat industry is the meat processing is heavily regulated and i just you know the, what's interesting to me is that the biden administration doesn't mention how federal regulation has played a role in reducing the number of meat processors and um there are some unusual reg regulatory regimes. I just wonder if you could kind of explain some of the unusual regulatory regimes that exist. Yeah. So, you know, in these discussions about market 
power, I think one of the first questions we should always ask ourselves is what are the barriers to entry? What's preventing new competition from entering this space? And when you think about meatpacking, one of those barriers is that there are a lot of regulations, state and federal regulations. Now, ostensibly, a lot of those regulations are designed to improve food safety. You know, whether they do or not, the impact of those is, you know, something I think that, that can be discussed. But for example, one of the biggest, you know, uh, examples of regulatory impact is that you have to be federally inspected. You have to pay for federal inspectors to be in a meat packing plant if you want to sh ship your meat across state lines. Um, and that's a pretty expensive proposition, particularly if you're a relatively small packer. Um, there are different state regulations you, that you can fall under if you want to only sell within your state. Uh, but interestingly, the U.S. government says even if you do a state inspection, it has to be at least as good as, in terms of safety impacts, the federal uh, standards. But but you're still not allowed to ship across state lines. So, you know, that's just one example of a myriad of, of kind of complicated set of rules and regulations that really you know impact this sector and, and may prevent co uh, more competition than we would have otherwise. That's great. I I I just don't get the the state restriction. Um, because again, I just to stress the point is that the, the USDA deems the these state facilities to be equivalent to the federal inspected facilities, yet they still cannot sell meat across the state lines. And then, you know, obviously being able to sell in interstate commerce is pretty important. So one one thing that's happening right now, and real quickly, is the Biden administration, I believe, is spending $500 million to help small meat processors and to try to create new processing capacity. Just your take on trying to do that, what impact that might have, if, if any? Sure. I mean, of all the things the government could do, that's probably less bad than some others. <laughs> but, um, but you know, honestly, I think it's, if you look at the impact of that investment, um, you know, in terms of the big picture, it's probably a relatively small impact in terms of total processing capacity. Uh, even before the government announced those, you know, th those sort of subsidies to encourage more meatpacking, there were already a large number of private efforts to introduce, you know, to build some new packing capacity in the system. Um, and, and so, in a way, you know, they may already be subsidizing something that was going to happen already. A lot of it is focused, again, on this kind of small and medium-sized processors. And when you look at sort of their their share of total production, it's just a, a tiny fraction. Of total production. So again, you know, one can make an argument. Maybe it's contributing to local economies. Uh, it's increasing options available to uh, to you know local producers. Um, I think those are maybe legitimate arguments. But honestly, I wouldn't expect it to have very much of an impact in terms of just aggregate national level prices that we're seeing on out to the future. And I think one one concern I have about those is back to this cattle cycle that I mentioned a, a moment ago. It is true. That we were very tight on packing capacity for the last year or two. We we had a large number of cattle and also a large number of hogs relative to our ability to process them. Um, but but the just sort of natural cycle was going to mean probably in the next two year or two's time period we were going to you know come off of some of those constraints already. So we may be you know subsidizing the addition of more packing capacity at a time when we weren't gonna need as much capacity uh, to begin with. So I think one fear I have is we may be waking up five years from now and we'll see a, a number of small and medium-sized packers going out of business uh, because there's just not enough animals relative to the capacity that, that exists in the future.
Well, well the government is, um, by spending money, it's kind, kind of um, taking winners and losers, I guess you could say, in this context. Whereas if maybe the, me talking, address the, the regulatory regime, maybe some of the unnecessary obstacles, maybe you can actually help the smaller processors that way. And at least that way, it's more market driven as opposed to the government deciding. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things of, of subsidizing sort of new entrants is you, you are favoring those new entrants over existing incumbents. And there, you know, while we, yes, there's a, you know, some large companies in the space, there are also, when you, particularly when you're looking at the small and medium sized packers, there's a lot of local ownership in those. And so in a way you're putting, now putting those existing incumbents at a disadvantage to the new incumbents that are, are gonna come in that have a, a subsidized level of operation. And so it, it is in some ways picking winners and losers. Jason, we could be we could talk about this all day. Um, unfortunately, they tell me we can't. So I really appreciate you joining us today. Um, it was great. And, um, and I wanna thank all of you who are participating in today's program right now and watching a recording of this event. I encourage you to visit heritage.org to learn more about this issue we've discussed today our other policy work, and of course, future events. I also encourage you to contact me using the information on your screen if you'd like to continue the conversation. You'll receive a survey immediately following this event. So please complete this if you can, so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public square. Again, thank you, Jason, and thank you all of you. Have a great day, and we look forward to seeing you again soon.